It's Thursday, December 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A recent top-secret cable was sent to CIA stations across the world saying that dozens of informants used as spies for the U.S. have been captured, killed, or compromised. According to one expert, because of technology, the old way of spying has become obsolete. Biometric scans, facial recognition, and even cell phones are revealing key facts about movements, patterns, and life associations. Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, famed TV artist Bob Ross is one of history's most prolific painters, racking up almost 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. But you'd be hard-pressed to find one of his original works in the open market. There are a few reasons why you might not find these paintings being sold. First off, Bob Ross Inc., which owns the majority of his work, has them locked away in a warehouse. They make more money selling paints and painting supplies using his name. Secondly, many of his paintings are already sitting in homes across the country. His paintings can sell for over $10,000. Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle, joins us for why it's so hard to find an original Bob Ross painting. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You have a country like China, which has a camera on every street corner in Beijing, and they're running, they're scanning faces 24 hours a day and running them through facial recognition databases. You know, how could you possibly operate an alias? Joining us now is Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Great to be with you, Oscar. Thanks. There was a recent cable sent out from the CIA to all of the CIA stations around the world talking about a, a troubling number of uh, informants that had been captured, killed, or compromised, just warning them to uh, step up the security on informants that they were gathering and, and you know just being a little more careful. We've also seen that there's a, a former CIA officer, CIA officer who was studying a lot of this for the agency is saying that the old way of spying may have become obsolete all due to technology. So it's an interesting look at kind of how our, our spy agency, our counterintelligence agencies operate. Ken, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, sure. So this top secret cable to the workforce wasn't in response, as I understand it, to any particular incident, was, but was the counterintelligence folks at the CIA, the folks that are in charge of like security and protecting secrets, wanted to make sure that everybody knew that, hey, there have been a series of these penetrations CIA informants have been caught. Some of some were arrested. Some were executed. You know, this has been going on as long as the CIA has been spying. But it seems like it's getting worse. And one of the reasons is that technology is making it harder than ever before to do human espionage. And the reasons are obvious, right? I mean, the model of the CIA for decades has been to send CIA officers mostly to live in embassies overseas and to pose undercover as State Department diplomats, right? And to have a fake job during the day, a cover job, and then go out at night and to cocktail parties or whatever and try to recruit foreigners to spy for the United States. And they often used fake names to do that. And even in the course of covert actions, as they were traveling around across borders, they would use aliases and have fake passports. Well, all of that stuff is rendered almost impossible now in the modern world. Just think of one example. If you've grown up in the age of social media, there are hundreds or thousands of pictures of you online in your true name that you can't get rid of, no matter how many, how hard you try. So you have a country like China, which has a camera on every street corner in Beijing, and they're running, they're scanning faces 24 hours a day and running them through facial recognition databases. You know, how could you possibly operate an alias? You can't. But that's just a minor part of it. I mean, you know, alias is not essential, but it's also really hard for them to hide their associations with 
the people that they are recruiting to spy. And so, and you know, the main culprit here obviously is the cell phone. Everybody's cell phone is a tracking device. And you can say, well, they just, just leave the cell phone in the car. That creates a pattern <laughs> in and of itself. If you're looking at someone and you know, it, it's really hard with all these digital devices, not just phones, but the telematics in our cars, it's going to get worse with the internet of things. It's really hard for us to hide what they call our pattern of life and our associations. And the guy I talked to that you mentioned, the former CIA officer, Dwayne Norman, part of his job in his 27-year career was studying this problem. And he has concluded that human espionage, as we know it, is done. It's got to be fundamentally rethought. Now, I have to say, most people at the agency and people I've talked to do not agree with that. They think that this is a problem that is surmountable, but he thinks they're kidding themselves. I mean, essentially, they think, oh, we can hack into all these databases. We can spoof the digital dust. We can figure out ways to make sure that we don't get caught using technology. And they can do that a lot of the time. But his point is the adversary is always going to find a way. There's always going to be something you didn't think of. And this model that we've had for decades just for the CIA just cannot work in the future going forward. Yeah. And and as you mentioned, there's so much that goes into it. Part of it is obviously the technology for our adversaries is growing so much. So we're in a sense, we're underestimating some of that. Some of the other things you did mention, biometric scans, facial recognitions, artificial intelligence, hacking tools, all of this helps them track the movement of CIA officers that are posing undercover. And you're right, you know, it makes it difficult for them to go out and recruit these people. So, I mean, obviously the people that are working on this still believe in the tradecraft, think it still works, and it does does still work to some extent, right? But uh, Dwayne Norman, uh, any suggestions on what to do going forward? Because, you know, we have to, if we have to rethink how we're doing it, uh, you know, what, you know, he's been studying this. Any suggestions from him? So he is the first to admit that he does not have the perfect answer to this. What he does say, though, is that he thinks that some part of the answer has to be more of a what he calls a public-private partnership, which really means the CIA convincing American companies to spy for the United States. That's going to be and really obviously, tough. <laughs> Right. I mean, look, that has been going on as long as there has been a CIA. You know, it happens all the time. Companies put CIA people undercover. They help out. They interview, you know, tell what they saw in some foreign land. But the idea of doing it in an organized fashion where it's actually a program where people have to account for it, obviously going to be deeply controversial, you know, especially in the post-Snowden era where a lot of people who work for big tech companies are, are, you know, don't want to cooperate with the U.S. intelligence community. But it's absolutely true that some form of that is it's already underway. I mean, because like right now, if you're in certain jobs at the CIA, you can't have any association with the agency. You could never set foot in the headquarters at Langley with a phone because that's trackable. So there are people who are embedded in companies right now who only a very few people know they're associated with the CIA, maybe one or two people at the company even. And sometimes they'll cycle back to their regular corporate job. And they, they work the corporate job the whole time. They're just also working as a spy. And I think that's the model that we're going to yeah. see increasingly in the future. And part of this, too, is, uh, you know, what some other people have said is that the U.S. intelligence is, is a little rusty in a sense because we've been focusing so much on terrorism and those related things. And getting back to this other regular spy craft is that's why we have to rethink it because we've been on that terrorism front so much. You know, that is certainly a factor. I think that's almost two different conversations though. There is certainly, that is the, the idea that the CIA has its muscles have atrophied in terms of classic espionage. But the thing is the classic espionage is transformed. I mean, the way they were doing it even 10 years ago does not work anymore. So it's got to be completely rethought. But in terms of like sloppy trade cap, I mean, the CIA first realized they had a crisis back in 2006 
when a group of CIA officers flew over to Italy to kidnap an Italian cleric who was a terror suspect. I happened to be in Italy at the time and I covered this case. And an Italian prosecutor using cell phone records and geolocation records, figured out who all these people were and tracked their movements to hotels. And some of them were very sloppy. Some of them used their own names. And at the end of the day, he had an airtight case. He indicted 23 Americans. Some of these people still can't travel today. He exposed their whole operation because of cell phone records. And so that was like a wake-up call for the CIA. Hey, you guys have a problem here. And they started changing the trade cap. But, you know, that was 15 years ago. Imagine what the Chinese services can do now to use big data to unmask uh, CIA officers and their recruits. Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. Great to be with you. Begin putting a little hill back here. Let it mix with the magic black. Start way back here and begin working on a little, just a little incline, a little hill, something. We don't want this to be too bright. We want this to be late at night, very dark. There. Joining us now is Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm going to talk about a fun story you wrote about Bob Ross, the TV artist who was hosting The Joy of Painting for a number of years on PBS. I mean, everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. Uh, happy little trees, happy little clouds. Myself, personally, I watched him when I was a, when I was a child. It's just so calming and really a great artist, famous for all his landscapes that he would paint. But you wrote an article about how Bob Ross paintings have become a really coveted investment. It's almost impossible to buy an original Bob Ross painting. And there's a lot of reasons that go into that. But start us off by telling us how many paintings he did over the course of his life. And then we'll get into kind of all the other fun stuff. You know, there's been an estimate that's thrown out by a lot of credible people in the Bob Ross space that he churned out about 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. Wow. Now, he painted about 1,100, 1,200 paintings for his TV show. And for each show, he'd do three versions. He'd mock one up before the show, he'd paint one during the show, and then he'd do one afterwards. But then outside of that, long before his TV career, he was selling paintings at flea markets in Alaska. And all through his career, even when he was famous, he'd do these events at malls and training sessions where he'd do these live paintings and either give them away or donate them. So there's a lot of those Bob Ross paintings out there, but in the open market, they're really hard to come by. Let's start off with Bob Ross and, and his life. Personally, I had no clue that he had joined the Air Force and that he was actually a drill sergeant, which totally doesn't match his really calm demeanor on the show. I guess they used to call him Bust Him Up Bobby. Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised by that. So Bob was born in 1942 in Florida. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade and his dad was a carpenter. So he worked with his dad for a while. And then he ended up in the Air Force in Alaska and he worked his 20, for 20 years as a drill sergeant. And when he was out there in Alaska in these desolate kind of landscapes, he discovered painting and fell in love with it. So he retired. He moved to Florida in the 80s and he studied under this famous TV painter named Bill Alexander, who was kind of his contemporary, this crazy guy on, on public television. And he took one of the guy's classes and became something of an apprentice. And one of his students named Annette Kowalski was mesmerized by Bob Ross 
and she convinced him to kind of strike out on his own. So they pulled together their money and they launched this company called Bob Ross Inc. And they kind of set out to make Bob Ross a TV star. And eventually a PBS executive got wind of Bob Ross and gave him a shot. And The Joy of Painting aired between 1983 and 1994. It was a huge hit. It was on like 300 stations and it was broadcast to 80 million people a day. Yeah, and it's still a huge hit on YouTube. Just kind of in preparation mm-hmm. for us talking today, I just clicked on some random videos. One had about 5 million. Another one had 35 million. I think it's like <laughs> over 450 million views total or something like that. I mean, it's just amazing yeah, kind yeah. of how long all of these videos really live on. And and you mentioned Bob Ross Inc. So the kind of company that they started, really that became the moneymaker, not necessarily these paintings or anything like that, but all the stuff, the intellectual property of that, because they sell paints and paintbrushes and all that. And that really was the business driver right there. Yeah, it's funny. Even today, you go online, you can find so much Bob Ross stuff, man. It's like paints, brushes, Bob Ross underwear, Bob Ross coffee mugs, energy drinks, watches, toasters. And for Bob Ross Inc., the paintings were kind of always an afterthought. The main value add for them was capitalizing on his image and spreading his, his kind of gospel of making painting accessible to everyone. It was a very profitable company. It was grossing around $15 million by 1991. But the paintings, they just went into storage and they sat around for a long time in cardboard boxes. And they didn't really know exactly what to do with them. And even today, they have this small kind of office complex in Northern Virginia. And if you go in there, there's just a bunch of Bob Ross paintings sitting around. And for the most part, they're not very utilized. And and I love the way you write it up in the story. And it's just so true. As he would give them away, they'd auction them off locally. A lot of these Bob Ross originals, right, are sitting in people's homes or in people's storage. They may not know, but they're just kind of out there. And that's where they're at currently. But in the open market to, you know, as a, as a, to sell them on the mm-hmm. art platform, you know, they're not really in wide circulation. So about 1,165 Bob Ross originals are at Bob Ross Inc. And they're just kind of sitting there. On occasion, they'll loan them out to various exhibits around the country. There's a couple at the Smithsonian right now. They're not on view, but they're in the archive. There's an exhibit in Muncie, Indiana. There's one in Florida. But like you said, the shocking thing is that, you know, outside of Bob Ross's TV work, he just was very generous during his lifetime. He had a lot of fans and most of the people who bought his painting were just like working class Americans, you know, living in the middle of America. And they picked these up for 40, 50, 60 dollars and kind of just thought they were a nice, pretty painting to hang on their wall. They're hanging in bathrooms and living rooms and hallways. And until recently, I don't think many people knew what they had on their hands, but when they do pop up on the open market, it's not uncommon to see them fetch more than $10,000. There's currently one at an auction house online for $94,000. So it can be quite a uh, tasty investment for the people who got in early. (laughs) You have a, a great story about a man named Larry Walton, who bought a Bob Ross painting for 60 bucks. I think this was in El- in Alaska. Tell us that story because he went through the process of actually turning it over to an art dealer. That art dealer ended up selling it for even more money. So tell us that story because that's just kind of a, an interesting ride for a Bob Ross painting. And for somebody that might have one, it's something that you could probably do too. A great story that illustrates the, the types of folks who own these paintings today is this guy, Larry Walton. He's 82 now and he lives in Minnesota. 
And back in 1980, he was working as a flight instructor in Alaska, and uh, he saw this guy who he described as a peculiar artist and at an Anchorage fair selling his paintings. And he bought this scene with like mountains and northern blue northern lights for $60. And it literally just it sat in his garage for years and years and years. And his son, who had seen Bob Ross's YouTube videos, saw the signature in the corner and thought it looked familiar. So they eventually realized it was a Bob Ross original. They reached out to this auction and art gallery named Modern Artifacts. They're a dealer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they're actually kind of the premier Bob Ross reseller. So they've put a lot of work into like SEO and newspaper advertisements to dig up these paintings and they'll buy them for what I think is a pretty fair price. I think in, in this case, they gave Larry Walton $10,000 for his painting. The gallery owner took it and flipped it for 18 and a half thousand to another Bob Ross buyer. But over the years, Modern Artifact has come across dozens of Bob Ross paintings and uh, made a, a pretty good business out of reselling them online to people who aren't able to find them anywhere else. Right. I think you mentioned in the article that they sold at least 34 Bob Ross paintings over the mm -hmm. years. And obviously, these landscapes, they're very simple. They're easily identifiable, obviously. They're, you can replicate them pretty easily. That was Bob Ross's style but, I mean, just kind of the persona that he's built up, the icon, I guess, the art icon that you you could call him over the years, you know, a cultural icon as well. They hold so much more significance. And I would love to have one in my living room and say, hey, that's a Bob Ross right there. You know, it, it's so cool. And, yeah. But you spoke to some art appraisers. They said that maybe the true value of one of these is probably about $2,000 to $4,000. But considering all that stuff that we've been talking about, right? That's what bumps up that price to ten thousand to eighteen thousand dollars. So the one that they have, it, as that you said, for ninety four thousand dollars at auction. It's a supply and demand thing. Art appraisals are based on many factors, but Bob Ross paintings. I think of them kind of like diamonds. Like there's tons of them out there, but there's kind of this artificial scarcity created by people holding on to them for a long time, and Bob Ross Inc. holding their trove as well. So this kind of shortage on the market causes the prices to just absolutely explode. And another appraiser told me they don't necessarily think of Bob Ross as a strictly fine art. They're kind of entertainment memorabilia. So you're also kind of paying for the fact that Bob Ross is on television. Right. And he was a public persona. And I actually talked to one collector who owns Picasso's and other famous artworks. And she actually told me she considered her Bob Ross to be kind of the crown jewel of her collection. <laughs> she gets more comments from her dinner guests on the Bob Ross than she does on her yeah. other paintings. And for her, it was all just about the painting having a really good backstory. And I think there's just a, a general fascination with Bob Ross. And he's kind of this permanent cultural icon, that's yeah. an immortal force in our culture. 100%. I'm going to start low-key looking for these Bob Ross originals floating <laughs> around. And I'm sure luck, a lot of man. people are going to hear this and then go to their garage or their storage and start looking at some of that stuff that they have hidden away to see if they might have one from years ago that they don't even know. So uh, yeah, just a great story. Yeah. And as I mentioned, a great guy with a lot of rich history to himself as well. Zach Crockett, senior writer at the hustle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.